So I think one thing I've seen is that this sector always adapts and pivot to where there's a need because we're only successful if... How can a set of skills lead you down the path to success? That's what we're setting out to answer on the Ed Up Canada podcast. I'm your host, Michael Sangster. Join me as we unpack how leaders around the world have taken training and skills and turned that into a lasting career. Now let's learn together. Welcome back to Ed Up Canada. Over 150,000 students a year benefit from career colleges in Canada. They provide meaningful paths to employment and great livelihoods. But the career education sector is often under fire. It isn't given the same consideration as other educational institutions. How do we improve things? What can better contribute to success for these institutions? Enter Victor Tazan of Sprott Shaw College and Chair of the Board of NAC. In this episode, we're going to discuss the enabling environment for career colleges, reputational challenges and criticisms, the experience of working with career colleges across Canada, and much more. So let me just start by introducing Victor, letting him say a little bit about Sprott Shaw and what they do, and what he's found out during his career working in the regulated career college sector. Victor? Well, first, thanks for having me join you, Michael. Always nice connecting. It's always great to have the opportunity to talk a bit about our sector. So Sprachaw College just recently celebrated its 120th anniversary. So we've been in continual existence since 1903. So for us, this province, we've seen a lot, I'd say, over the last 120 years. But we're reflective of a sector that probably educates and trains and addresses labor and force needs in every field imaginable. So for us, currently, it's anything from nursing and healthcare, to human services and health sciences, to education, to trades, to business. And, you know, if you look at our sector, it's all those fields plus so many more from flight training to cosmetics to IT. So as a whole, we're um, pretty honored to be here today, be able to speak and to be able to talk a bit more about our sector. So let's talk a little bit about yourself first. You've had a long career in the sector. I won't say how old you are, <laughs> but you've had, a, you've had a good run and not all of it was Sprott Shaw. You were with the organization, then you went somewhere else and came back. Why are you so passionate about this sector? Why are you so fired up about what you do? You know, I was fortunate, I'd say, to grow up in this sector. And so having started off as a part-time instructor, worked my way through the the colleges from part-time instructor to a director, which is a campus director or campus president, depending on the province you're in, to a regional director, to a vice president, to a president. So I've been fortunate to see the benefit of what our industry does and what our colleges do, what our people do. Our people are so passionate about the education they provide, about the lives they impact and the changes they make, that to be honest, it's humbling. And what's kept me in this sector is just seeing the lives we change and the role we're allowed to play in helping people progress, change careers, start a new career, get a job, the sector trains people from whether they're 18 to 70. And I think for oftentimes we take for granted the role we play in our communities and in our country and in our provinces. And it's just been overly humbling for me to do it. So I've had the fortune of, yes, spending uh, about 30 years in the sector now. That was my second time with Sprott Shaw. 
was with another group that was a national before that or in the middle of that. But it's just been a, a sector that I believe in. And ironically, I am a third generation family of graduates from the sector. So my, my mother was an attendee. I had myself, my siblings that were public and private graduates. I've got nieces and nephews that have gone to the sector. So I just believe in what we do and I see the good in what we do. Well, we often see that that story of one generation to another, a college even being handed down from one generation to another and continuing on that line because of the the passion. So do you have anything a thought about the changes you've seen during your time in the sector? There's been a lot I've seen over 30 years. There's also been a lot I've seen because I've been able to operate schools in five different provinces. And there's different environments, different regulatory markets, different regulatory environments. So, you know, I'd say a group that in the 90s was really, you know, more in the business, the administration side, probably some beauty and cosmetic schools, really a growth, I'd say, over the last 30 years to so many other different programs and offerings. But more importantly, I'd say an adaptation or a pivot to programs where there's a labor force need. I can take Sprott Shaw as an example of that. I mean, one thing I love is talking about our history. And one thing I think the college has always done really well at, and like many colleges across this country, is just finding out where is there a labor force shortage or a labor force need. So for us, you know, one of our favorite stories is how we brought radio to British always adapts and pivot to where there's a need because we're only successful if we have outcomes. And outcomes for us are successful graduates who find employment, who advance to the life they were looking to have. They become members of the community. They pay back their student loans. That's how success is defined for a private or a regulated career college. So before we go on to a couple of personal questions, because we like to dance around a little bit on this podcast, I'm interested to hear you've worked in multiple provinces. You touched on that earlier. You touched on the history. I was had the great pleasure of being at your 120th anniversary and hanging out with Sprotty, that very, very creatively named nicknamed mascot you had. I don't know who came up with Sprotty for Sprott Shaw College. Brilliant. But it was really neat to be there. But I'm interested about the what you've seen in different provinces. I guess the main focus has got to be around the regulatory environment and the things that you've seen as you've operated in multiple provinces. First, I'll give credit to our, our staff because uh, staff and students all got to be part of the naming for the mascot. And so they came up with Sprotty and that was by far the overwhelming favorite. The different provinces, what's unique, Michael, I'd say, is that there's probably sometimes a misconception that regulated career colleges aren't regulated. So one thing that's important to understand is every province has regulation. It just may look or feel a little differently, right? So every, every province has a different act. Every province has a different policies, procedures that are important or pertinent to their particular location or their particular region. What's important for us is operators, I'll say as colleges, is to understand what are the nuances and the uniquenesses of every different provincial region. So some of the larger regions may have had a longer history and more institutions, which might have different focuses and maybe be a tiny bit more prochaic, where some of the smaller regions might have less colleges and there might be a bit more of a personal relationship. But fundamentally, I'd say it's the importance of understanding that every province is different. Some have their own acts where they regulate just career colleges. Others have legislation or acts where public and private are under the exact same department or branch or ministry for that matter. So it's just a matter of understanding that we all regulate, they all regulate, they just do it differently. And important for all of us to understand what those rules, what those regulations are, and I'm saying who are 
compliance people are, the regulators are, just so we can build relationships, understand what's important to them, and for them to have better understanding of what we do and the value we bring. Yeah, I agree with you. And I find that across the country as I travel and talk to colleges. The one thing we hear is we're not opposed to regulation. We embrace regulation. We just want consistent regulation so that you can make plans and move forward. And and I think I would be uh, amiss if I didn't just speak to the workforce stuff you talked about earlier, but the labor market force needs that you need to meet to offer a program, don't you? Oh, absolutely. You know, let's talk British Columbia for a moment. If we look at regulation in our province, so we've got private training institution branch, what we refer to as PTIB. So it falls under the Ministry of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills here. Then there is also an administrative branch under that called EQA, which is Education Quality Assurance, which is another option most colleges apply for. So that is basically who oversees us in terms of regulated career colleges. Then we go into programs. We have 130 different programs. So to give you an idea, in addition to the to our regulators, there's so many different program regulators. So in my province, I you might know, have British Columbia Care Aid and Community Health Worker Bridge. We have British Columbia College of Nurses and Midwives, British Columbia College of Oral Health Services, BC Emergency Health Services, Ministry of Education and Child Care, Skills Trade British Columbia. So just to give you an idea, those are just a few, and we don't even offer every program out there. I mean, there is so much regulation. And what that hopefully does for people and for students is to realize a lot of these bodies regulate whether you're a public or a regulated career college. So as an example, if we have nursing graduates, a number of nursing schools in British Columbia, uh, practical nursing schools, our graduates are regulated by the exact same body, write the exact same national exam as every other province. So where confidence, I think, can come into the market, which is often understand, is there is so much regulation, but there's also regulation that often on the program level is the same, whether it is a regular career college or a public college or university. I agree. And that's lost on a lot of people. It's important we take a moment and I say celebrate it. Celebrate the fact that we're under good regulatory environments. We work well with our regulators and we accept that. And we just want consistency in what we see. So let me move in a new direction here. Let's talk about yourself. You've clearly been very successful in your career. In this role, you're now, I believe, as president and chief operating officer is the role that you that you have with Sproutshaw College. I think the, the big title is that chair of the National Association of Career Colleges. That's clearly a, a lofty title you've, you've attained. But let's talk a little bit about a skill that you learned early on or not, or one that you learned later on in life that has contributed to your own your own personal success, because we've got learners that listen to this broadcast as well. We want a little bit of insight from, a, from an executive leader who's done well. You know, great question. Probably say there's two things. Like I say, one's a philosophy and one's a skill. One thing, and I'll bring this to my family, I was brought up with is, I'll say the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto others. Basically treat others the way you want to be treated. And I think that is something that is sometimes lost, but is so important in every aspect of our lives, whether it's your personal life, your family life, your volunteer life, and more so your business life. And I think that's something that's so important if you're in a leadership role, because at the end of the day, we're all equal. We might have different jobs, different functions, different duties, but we're only successful as if we work together as a team on a shared goal or a shared outcome. So I, say, I think that philosophy is important because if you generally take the time to try to get to know people, to understand people, to communicate people, to be respectful to people, you build trust. If you build trust, you build relationships. If you build relationships, ultimately you'll build success because you're all working together. So I'd say philosophically, something I, I've been blessed with growing up with is that principle. And my parents installed that in me. 
on the skill side, early in my career, we were doing some leadership courses and we had some speakers come talk to us. And one person spoke to the importance of anticipation. He said, if you can learn one skill or one thing, trait, learn to anticipate. And at the time, it resonated with me. And I always remember, it's been about 25 years since I first heard that. But it's the ability to think and look forward, to see what changes might be on the horizon. And, you know, when you first think and you hear the word anticipate, maybe you underestimate in a sense. But the reality is when you're looking forward, it's not just looking forward about something specific. It's looking forward into all those controllable and uncontrollable variables, all the different things that may impact your sector. You know, whether it's your customers, you know, in our case, labor force, the economy, government, regulation, trends, competition. And there's just so many different aspects. I think if you're looking forward, you're always advancing. What's allowed regulated career colleges to have over 100 years in this country, and somebody I think there's one school that's 150, is I believe that ability that they always have to be forward-looking because we always have to be adapting, pivoting to address the needs, and also to understand how our consumers change, how our regulatory environment changes, how the, the government changes. You know, and then to look at even take something as technology and AI right now. If we're not looking at that, embracing that, we're quickly going to become laggards because it's going to change education. So I would say an important skill for any of us to take the time to do is to anticipate, and that includes, you know, data analysis, gathering information, making good decisions, reviewing them, and looking at it holistically into every variable you can imagine. And that's always the tricky part when you're busy is to stop and actually go back and look at the data or find the data. It's easier to just keep going forward. It's harder to be a little bit more receptive to reviewing data and looking at things. So I appreciate that answer. Your first one, I was interesting because I focus on something quite often called, I call it to myself, break bread. And I have it on the wall. I'm a whiteboard guy on the walls here. You can't see them, but it's breaking bread with people. It's getting to know them. It's making sure that you actually can see eye to eye so that when there are issues, they kind of, they become a little bit, the edges become rounded. So I, I liked your first answer about getting to know people. We've even seen that with our own board at NAC. One of the most important things we've been able to do after COVID is get together, break bread, talk about actually shared goals, shared objectives. One of our great partners on our board right now is uh, Krista, that you work so well with in British Columbia. You're a competitor that's less than a block away from each other, aren't you? Yeah, many, many centers. <laughs> Not just the one I was in, but in many different places, you're very, very close to each other and, and work very well together for the common good. Absolutely. Interesting to watch. And it kind of leads me into, into a question here, just because I think it's important. It's not about promoting sprout shots, but having a conversation about what these institutions are. So talk to me about how many students you have in a year, how many campuses that you support, maybe even a little bit of operational information about like how many employees, like these are not small operations. I will say that some of our strong colleges are smaller operations focused on one program and 12 students at a time and making a big difference in the Muskoka's or in Brandon, Manitoba, to train people as well. But give me an idea of the, the size and depth of your institution. Well, first off, you're, you're absolutely correct in terms of our sector serves everything from single location campuses that might be serving a small rural community or an outlying area to larger metropolitan locations that might have numerous campuses, numerous programs, and thousands of students. And all are equally important. For Sprotshaw, we basically have about 16 locations give or take about 3,500 students a year we're fortunate to educate and train on. And we run basically in all the major regions of British Columbia. So 
organizationally, what that looks like is we have between four to 500 staff at any given time. And when you have that size, it's a matter of, it's important to have the right infrastructure, policies and procedures in place. And you, and you talked about it earlier, Michael, and you're absolutely right. Compliance and regulation is an important part of our business. And it's when you have size, it's also having that structure and that formula and those processes to also support staff. So for us, you know, we, we have positions in every key area, every key discipline, you know, whether it's operation, finance, human resources, diversity and equity. We have faculty leaders, we have faculty team members, we have campus directors, obviously we have the administration. So, you know, when you look at an organization of our size, it's a matter of having, I'd say, leadership in place, processes in place, and most importantly, the one thing we can all do better at is communication in place to be able to, to support all the different departments and to have them all operate as one team. You know, when, when I came back to Sprachaw, one of the things we talked about was having a, a one college vision. When I came in, they had four different regionals at the time and they were running things different ways. And then today, if you're trying to lead a team and you have a vision, it has to be a shared vision with everyone's moving in the same direction. So, you know, that ability to communicate, to have, say, values and a purpose, and then everyone to understand that we work in the same direction is so key. And that really starts with communication and leadership. So you're talking about 3,500 learners over how many locations? 16. Let's do a bit of quick math here without, without doing it out loud. <laughs> Those are small, nimble, agile locations. Yes. That are focused on the students. That's, I think, what gets lost a lot more in, when people talk about our sector. You're not talking about 20,000 people on a piece of real estate. You're talking about smaller groups. I had the pleasure of being in your campus in Burnaby for the 120th anniversary and seeing the dental group and seeing the uh, the healthcare people who were taking my blood pressure, and they thought it was a bit high, by the way. That's because you were hanging out with me. Usually it's much lower. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it does lower. When I, when I went over to Discovery College, my blood pressure came right down. In all seriousness, it is the smaller class sizes, more instructors. I'm going to challenge you here, a bit of a curveball, but talk to me about your campus director in that location I was in, because she, she was an intriguing lady. Absolutely. So first off, you're right. In the, the sector itself, I would say it was usually geographically based. I mean, there's some huge art design schools and different things, but for, fundamentally, a lot of our sector is based on that convenience. So it's close to people's homes or communities and embracing their communities. And they're offering class sizes that are favorable for learning. And sometimes people don't do well in a class of 350 people, realistically, right? So I think that's always been a bit of impetus. And because we're career and labor force focused, we try to have programs that support that mentality, hands-on, practical experience. My Surrey team and my Burnaby team, so you get to meet a few of my directors over the years, over the last year, particularly director in Surrey Jones. She's phenomenal. She's been in the sector off and on for over 30 years. She's another great story. Started off as a, a part-time administrator, worked her way up through a couple of different schools, a couple of different brands. I believe she was a vice president at one point. And she's at a stage in her life where she loves campus life. She loves the student experience. She loves staff. And she's at that stage where she just wants to give back, continue to support students, continue to lead and mentor staff. And she brings a great culture to that campus. The other thing I was struck with, and we'll move on after this, but I was struck with one thing that we've had a criticism in the last year in our sector about being strip mall campuses. I was at your campus and I wouldn't call that in a strip mall, but you're in a a commercial operation there. There was housing and other issues, but what was across the street that I rode to get there? Yes. Yeah. We call it SkyTrain in BC. Yes. 
Skytrain, right. It was above ground, right? Yes. I live in Ottawa where the subway doesn't work. But that's one of the things that I find is one of these criticisms that are a little hard to manage at times too. But that was a great facility in the right location where the students could get to and where they wanted to be. It's a new complex. I mean, it's got towers above us. But yeah, it's centrally located. It's convenient. Whether you're parking or driving or biking or taking the SkyTrain, it's easily accessible. And, and you're, so you're right, that dental lab and like so many dental, different dental and hygienist schools across the country, they know if you build a lab like that, you're putting a, basically an 800000 to a $1 million investment into a location. So there's a lot of pride, I'd say, in facilities and it's sometimes misunderstood, but we all do it knowing that we have to deliver the outcomes and that's never sacrificed. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So let's let's keep going on this path because you and I could talk about the warm and fuzzies of the career education world. Maybe we should spend a little bit of time on the not so good and talk through some of the reputation challenges our sector faces. And it was interesting. We had a, a meeting with a, with a federal minister recently about a topic last summer that we're working through with him. And he looked us in the eye and said, I know you get judged by the company you keep and they're not even your members. Talk a little bit about your view of what the challenges our sector faces. I'd say there's probably a few things. First, sometimes I like to call it the best kept secret because I don't think people have a full understanding of regulated career colleges. Education in this country is very much seen as public. You know, when you're in elementary school or high schools, when you have counselors come speak to you, or people come speak to you, they're coming from public colleges, public universities. Your parents grew up saying, I want my son or daughter to go to university. It's kind of a perception that you grew up with. And they don't even realize the, the role sometimes that regulated career colleges actually play. So first, we sometimes fight, I'd say, a perception challenge and an understanding challenge of what our schools do. So that, that is a battle we sometimes have. Then they, there's this, because you're not public, they see it as a private for profit. But it's not that education private. Right? We're just, because we're not public, we don't get the same funding, the same subsidies. So we have to run it as a business would have to run in terms of your revenue and your expenses and your management. But that's neither a good or bad thing because if you do a good job, you will continue. I mean, we're here for 120 years. We wouldn't be here for 120 years if we didn't have the outcomes, if we weren't delivering the quality education, if we weren't supporting our students and adapting to labor market needs because we just simply wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be sustainable. And sustainable is a very important part of any college, public or private. So first off, there's that perception, that misunderstanding. Secondly, sometimes there may be schools or institutions that don't understand the importance of regulation. I'd say they don't understand the importance maybe of ensuring that they're providing a quality experience for their staff or the students. But fundamentally, that's the vast minority. And that can happen in a public or a private. I mean, people sometimes might think, hey, what's your, your teachers, your education, their backgrounds? Well, I've got a son who went to a very well-known public university who's TA for his second level org behavioral class was a second year university student. He was a third year university student. He came home and said, hey, my TA is a second university. He just posted on LinkedIn. This is his first ever job. My thought was, you've got to be kidding me. That cannot be true. And then I went and I looked and I thought, because we would never be allowed to do that. Our regulation, and our promise, I would never be allowed to have that. And I laughed and I thought, there's so much questions about regulated that we don't even realize what happens on the public side. And I'm thinking, okay, so you have a, someone who's your TA who's never had a job in his life, who's teaching your behavior. And I just left it at that. But there is a misconception because we're often scrutinized and looked at so much closer. But the vast majority of the schools do things right. They invest in the education. They invest in the teachers. They invest in professional development. They invest in their students. 
they track their students post-graduation. We report on our success rates, report on our graduation rates. We do everything we can to make sure that our students, which are at the heart of our institutions, are successful. And that's what we care about. And you know, if you talk to staff in this sector, if you attend a grad, you see that, you feel that. There's actually nothing more powerful than attending a graduation in our sector. And people who attend a graduation in our sector have a different perspective when they leave because of the stories they see, the emotions they can see and feel, and the feelings they have when they leave those events. I agree with you. I've had the pleasure of attending more than a few graduation ceremonies now, and it's quite often uh, seven, eight, ten guests, no limit. I've got a couple of girls graduating from Queen's University this year, and I think maybe it's three per guest. And I go to these graduations, there's seven, eight, ten, twelve people, grandparents, parents, sometimes it's, actually often it's the first person to ever graduate from a post-secondary institution. Might be a single mom, might be a 40-year-old who's gone back to school who never thought they'd graduate from university. And I, you can't not get passionate about this sector uh, when you go see that. And, and I wish more thought leaders, media, uh, people who judge us, will put it that bluntly, would take that opportunity to go see how rewarding an experience it is and talk about a diverse crowd. Absolutely. Some of the best speeches I've ever heard in my life are grad uh, convocation speeches from from valedictorians that I, there was one recently Algonquin Career Academy in Ottawa I attended. The human tragedy that had gone on around this young lady, her story is not for mine to tell. Uh, it was incredible what she had gone through with illness and her husband's illnesses and they've gotten through that and this and that and her dad there in the front row. Uh, it was a pretty emotional experience to be a part of. It was it was fantastic. And I'm sitting afterwards with the, uh, the owner of the college, Des Soy, where I'm in a conversation. He goes, you can't not love this. You can't not be appreciative of it. So let's go back to your own self, though. Let's do this. It's easy for us to get fired up. You're not in this sector. You've just had a career. It doesn't matter what it was. Who's that mentor that has significantly changed, contributed, improved your life or your career? That one person could be two, could be three. And it's funny, the more of these they do, we always ask this question. I think of a new one every time who's had an impact on me. So do you have one or two? I would say I probably have to. It's, it's, it's a funny question because I've been asked that so many times over my career. And the first people, and I talked a bit about it earlier, that I always go back to are my parents. And to be honest, my parents, my dad was a soccer coach to me when I was in university. I worked in construction. He was teaching me, you're first on the job, last off. Because I was a son, you had to work harder. You can never do this. So he helped mentor my work ethic. He helped shape me. My mother helped. When I was in university, she would proofread all my essays, be brutally honest, send them back to me, make me edit. You got to remember in those days, you're printing, you're writing, and I didn't have the best writing, or using a dot matrix printer. And every time you make a change, it's probably going to take another hour to reprint that 20-page essay I was writing. But they always instilled to me, I'd say, values, which I think I've been able to carry into my career and try and bring to my colleges. They created work ethic, and they always talk to us about the importance of treating people with respect. So I'd say one of my mentors just who shaped me as a human, like most of us, and since so, so positive it's impacted my professional life, have been my parents. The second one, and he would have no idea, would have been one of my university professors. I think I took a second level course with them and was in uh, one of my, my second majors and was in history. And his style of teaching was so engaging because he just didn't sit there and talk. He would actually invoke communication, 
have us participate, but put the onus on us to participate. So I had him for that one course, and I thought, okay, I really enjoyed this person. His name was Bob Kecky, Professor Kepke. And so then I took some third-level courses. And you got to understand, the third-level courses I took with them are courses I would never probably take at the time because they weren't my interest, but they were like 19th century thinkers, 19th century literature, and you had to read a book every week and come to class, which also wasn't my MO at that time. I loved writing papers. I loved writing essays. But like many younger students, you know, the concept of having to read a, a book in every class every week didn't always match my social life. But because it was his class, I did. And what he would do is we would read that book, and then we'd come in with one question. And it was a small group, so I say there's about 12 of us. And everyone would bring their question, and then as a group, you would discuss it. But what it did was, A, it opened up your mind to different perspectives. B, it allowed you to hear other people's opinions in a non-judgmental way. It engaged us, but it got you to critically think, because oftentimes you think of something or you have a first response, but then you listen, and you get to hear someone else's perspective, and it might adjust or adapt. And I think that's such an important skill because sometimes we don't always listen. So he would probably have never known the role he's played in my life, but I ended up taking like three courses and he helped shape. And what's interesting to me, it's the field I'm in now. And I think a lot of what I learned in his classes, I took when I was a teacher and I realized, Hey, how do you engage students? How do you encourage learning? What can you do to make sure that they're present? And that I would have taken from my professor at um, university. That's an interesting perspective. And I think if we're doing something right with this podcast, if we can make some people be of an age where they have to Google what a dot matrix printer was. For those of us who <laughs> suffered the pain and suffering of university papers with those things, and you'd make a change and you'd see something and you'd print it again. Or when you were on campus and had a shared one yeah. and you had to queue up for your turn to get on the dot matrix printer. Oh, I may are, have just aged us. <laughs> there are some moments in time that... Uh, I think I've got four printers in this house that are working now that every one of them is far beyond the capability of everything that was on campus at that time. So I'm interested in what is the one thing that makes a campus special for you? That if you were to think about that one thing that makes one of these campuses of yours or another college, this that special place where, where a student should end up or could end up and, and share that with us today. You know, I'd say it's that sense of belonging. So to me, that, that ties into whether it's a campus or an organization. I think culture is very important. Your people, by far, are the most important. But that campus that has that vision, that purpose, that makes people feel as individuals, as unique, that they can have a voice. When you talked earlier, I said, you know, you go to university class in your first or second year, you're sitting in three, 400 people. No one ever knows if you're in that room. When you come to a regulated career college, whether it's your class or a campus, I'm hoping that in most cases you're felt like you're a person or an individual. And it's when you're seen as a human, you're treated as a human, you're heard, I think it allows people to grow. What it also allows is when the schools have that right culture, when a student is struggling or has a challenge, they know they have someone to talk to. I mean, if you're in a larger group or a larger thing where you don't think you're seen or heard, and especially in today's day and age, with all the mental health challenges and everything that's come in the last few years and all the awareness around that, if you don't know you have ability to have support, you these are sometimes that fight or flight and you leave. Where I think our sector and our successful college and our institutions, where they realize we care about them and where they realize they can talk to someone, that allows people to grow, that allows people to be successful, and end of the day, that allows them to graduate and move on to that career 
that adventure, that field that brought them there in the first place. And I, and I think you can't understate or underestimate the importance of a good campus culture, a good organizational culture, and making creating that sense of belonging for people, whether it's staff or students. I appreciate you sharing that. It's interesting. We talked about you're a large institution, but one of the things I love about the small institutions when I get to them is, and it builds on what you talked about earlier, how often they come from someone who had a career in a sector who decided to give back and educate and ended up opening a career college, figuring out the regulations, getting over the line and teaching trucking or teaching IT. And there's so many amazing stories. The vice chair of our board right now, Craig Tucker from Kean College in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, comes out of a college that was begun to teach people how to do data entry. And they couldn't figure out how to name the college. And what do we do? We key in data. And that's how it became <laughs> key in college. And Brilliant. there's so many of these stories who were looking for a need and you've spent your career doing it and fulfilling a need. So thank you for your time today. I have to personally thank you for your leadership in the sector. You've played a big role in some things that we've accomplished in British Columbia and what we've accomplished across the board. And we're going to do more this year. But I thought I'd give you a chance if you had any last thoughts before we uh, end the, the the podcast today. Maybe just two things. So first, generally appreciate it. I love your leadership, Mike. I like working with the NAC board. I love the fact that we can collaborate across this country as partners to advance our sector. And I love the fact that the NAC members and the NAC board, they're all working in the right direction with the right values. And that is so important for our sector and so important for our member institutions. The second thing is just for people, for everyone to understand, our students are, like we said, they're every makeup imaginable, every generation imaginable. They're people born here. They're newcomers. They're international students. So when we think of regular career college, it really is that 18 to 72-year-old from every imaginable background. And different colleges have different focuses or different niches, but they all do the exact same thing to support students and to help drive them to labor force needs, which is why we exist. So... From my side, again, thank you. Thank you for the questions and thank you for the opportunity to, to join you today. I appreciate it. And uh, with that, we'll, we'll wrap up for today. I, I can't forget to, to mention that not only is a, a Victor a, a lover of this sector, a passionate uh, fan of the game of soccer, football. We don't have to go into the debate about why we call a game football that isn't involving really using the foot. Uh, but soccer that uses the foot, right? But we won't get into that. But he's he shares a, a common um, passion, would be too strong of a word, let's call it a like, uh, for a drink called Fireball. And uh, <laughs> we appreciate that. Uh, we talk about camaraderie. I talked earlier about breaking bread. It's important to have fun. It's important to be able to have a laugh once in a while too. So Absolutely. Uh, Vic and I got along well when we realized that we could both enjoy a Fireball on ice together. So thank you for your support, Vic, of what we're doing. With that, we'll we'll wrap up this edition of the Ed Up Canada podcast. I encourage you all to to share this episode with your friends and family if, if you've enjoyed it offer up some suggestions of things that you'd like to hear about as we continue to grow our audience and take a moment and and like the uh, podcast on the sharing platform that you listen on to help us broaden the reach of who we're getting to so thank you all thank you vic and i look forward to uh, being back with you all next week thanks for listening to another episode of the ed up canada podcast we release new episodes regularly, so make sure you hit that subscribe button so you know when they are officially out. If you love this episode, please leave a four- or five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts so that others can also discover how a set of skills can lead to success. Thanks for learning with us.